0: Good morning, I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents, and just trying to make sense of the whole situation, which is an ongoing battle. I'm joined here by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. And so let's jump right into it. Stars Group, uh, Stars Group TSG is the ticker. Uh, they were in Plat, the ETF. Their stock, you look here, is up now. Uh over thirty percent this morning on news that they are merging uh with a company called Flutter Flutter somewhat recently changed their name from like patty book um it based out patty of power patty power yeah. out of Ireland I think um we had looked at them. For the ETF, but they are listed as an OTC stock.
1: They, they also have majority linear revenue, I believe. So they have a lot of sports book betting, basically, and stuff that's on their own book, linear revenue. They don't have as much platform revenue as uh stars group group does group. with Poker Stars. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So you can see here the news.
1: So, Patty Book,
0: Patty, did I get it right? Patty, Patty book, Power. Patty Power. Um, bought FanDuel last year for half a billion dollars, but they they do linear sports betting, as Nick was just talking about. And um, PokerStars is owned by Stars Group. Stars Group owns a variety of different things. We spoke about Stars Group uh, a couple weeks ago, striking a deal with Fox yep. um, to integrate media and sports betting more closely together. So they struck a $12 billion deal here to create the world's biggest online betting group um, so, what is the platform dynamic in this? As Nick was alluding to Flutter, when you're when you are providing betting services and you are using your own balance sheet to essentially facilitate that bet, right? You are the bookie, and then people are taking bets out. That's linear. That doesn't actually qualify um, as a platform business model. So, what is the platform right. dynamic here um, of 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 just say Stars Group, um, and then we can talk about Fanduel.
1: Yeah, well, Stars Group has Poker Stars, which is all basically peer-to-peer betting. You're playing against other people playing poker. Pretty straightforward. You've got you know a bunch of players sitting at a table playing against each other and betting money. Someone wins, someone loses. Uh, so that that's a what we would call social gaming platform, uh, and that makes up, uh, if I remember right, the lion's share of their revenue. It's mm-hmm. a huge. They're basically the biggest poker platform in the world. I think some margin at this point. Yep. So that's a pretty big driver for them. All
0: all these, all these brand names, right? If if you play like Full Tilt, Sky Bet, you know, Poker Stars, these are all part of um, the Stars Group portfolio here. So FanDuel similarly has a platform dynamic around fantasy sports betting um, and that kind of you know sports oriented betting, similar to the the Poker Stars platform dynamic. So FanDuel
1: basically, you're playing against. Other people, they call it technically not gambling. It's a game of skill. But basically what you're doing is uh, trying to predict certain outcomes related to fantasy sports and putting and there's a lot of different permutations of it. But you're playing against other players and some of you win and some of you lose. And it's a similar similar kind of social gaming platform dynamic.
0: Now, um, fun little tidbit of information. So you may say, oh, FanDuel, FanDuel, uh, the founders are getting rich off of this deal. Wrong. FanDuel had been valued at over a billion dollars. The investors um, then outranked the minority shareholders, minority shareholders being the founders, to sell it last year um, to uh, Patty. God, I'm Patty Poker. I'm just not remembering this name today. Whatever. It's now (laughs) called Flutter. Flutter, let's go with that. It's no longer Patty. You can see why they changed the name because no one remembers the name. Um, Flutter is much better. So anyway, they sold it to Flutter last year, took a huge haircut, sold it for $465 million. It was valued at over a billion dollars. Basically, the founders got crammed down and their equity was basically worth nothing.
1: Founders and early employees didn't get, I think, anything. Uh, I think current executives and later stage investors and you know, investors that had a priority did okay.
0: They put in four hundred sixteen million dollars in, in, as investment, and it was sold for four hundred sixty-five. So it basically, scraped not, not a good fifty million dollars more than how much money was actually put into the business.
1: Okay. So let's talk about why that is, though. There's FanDuel and there's Poker and uh, DraftKings. DraftKings are the two big fantasy sports. DraftKings in the they're both predominantly in the U.S. if not entirely. And uh, DraftKings is by all the numbers we've seen much bigger. Uh, DraftKings, I believe, still an independent company. Mm-hmm. Uh, They have uh, the latest numbers I saw. I think they have about 10 million. They claim they have more than 10 million users. What is defined as a user? Not exactly clear. Uh, Whereas the numbers I found on uh, FanDuel said they had 6 million registered users. Of course, that's not active users, which indicates to me that uh, DraftKings is probably significantly larger Mm -hmm. uh, than FanDuel. So you have that winner take all dynamic. Uh, happening here, uh, which isn't a surprise, looking at the kind of platform dynamic going on. And with that, you've got a dominant player, DraftKings, and FanDuel is still a distant number two. One of the interesting things about this deal, though, is because Stars Group has that tie up with Fox, part of what is in this deal is that Fox, I think in 2021 or somewhere around there, has the option to take like an 18% stake. Uh, in FanDuel at a set price, basically. So they have a lot of incentive to try to push FanDuel through uh, their media channels to get more business through FanDuel and help grow that business if that does, because then they can take a big equity stake and make a big profit from doing that.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. DraftKings raised pretty much double the amount of money that FanDuel did. Um, It was rumored that DraftKings is trying to raise more money now at, at, at at least a $2 billion valuation obviously this is now just going to put a lot of increased pressure on DraftKings where you have, now you have the, the roll up on the kind of poker betting side of the arena, the traditional linear sports book betting. Now you have the fantasy sports platform betting model, and then you have the distribution from Fox all rolled up into this one company. Um, which is why you know you see Stars Group stock over up over 30% today. All of that's just putting a lot of pressure on DraftKings. It'll be interesting to see what they're able to do. And and the valuation that I think they had previously tried to raise at is now certainly going to come under a lot of pressure.
1: I think the, the other piece of it is, what do the other big gaming companies do? How do they respond to this? Because if you've got this big, dominant online competitor, which is trying to grow uh fantasy sports and is now going to be super dominant in uh you know, poker and doing very well also in sports betting well and how do you respond what what can was, you do to respond it was to penn that penn
0: national which right. owns actual physical casinos that was what we spoke about a few weeks ago in regards to the stars group partnering right. up with those guys right to do a role, you know, to do a partnership there. And so now you could kind of get access to the U S markets and all these kinds of stuff. So, so yeah, I, you know, I really like what the company is doing. I think you're starting to see again, the winner take all dynamic, just playing itself out here. Naturally, if, if the platform is not able to get to the winner take all dynamic, just on their own, then you're going to see companies merge and consolidate and come together to rip out cost and just compound those network effects. So um, now let's look at PetSmart. So BC Partners, private equity firm, uh, bought PetSmart in 2015, right? Uh, PetSmart, leading bricks and mortar specialty retailer, 1,600 plus stores. Um, and uh, they, they took the company private, BC Partners and some limited partners here. Okay. Then a couple of years later, they go buy Chewy. For about three point three billion dollars, Chewy being the leading linear e-commerce pet store um, in the market, basically now bringing the the leading retail brick and mortar pet store with the leading e-commerce pet store into one. Yep. Um, lots of analysts and skeptics said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Why would they go and do this? Um, clearly, we've seen in the past few years subsequent to that roll-up that I think actually Chewy has just operated quite independently from PetSmart. I don't even know if there's been too much synergy. I think PetSmart was able to help capitalize the business, um, help Chewy kind of continue to focus on growth, bring some capital to the table in the transaction. And I think just the pet industry in general has done
1: very well for itself. I think part of the rationale of the acquisition was PetSmart's uh, private equity owners were looking at their business and said, we need to do e-commerce. We can't build it ourselves. It's too late. And we have too many problems going on with the real estate and the core business and all those typical retail problems that we've talked about a lot on the show. Uh, So they said, all right, let's go buy this so we can own some of that growth. It was definitely a kind of bet the company type move. Uh, and Mm -hmm. it, it has paid off pretty well, at least in the short term for them.
0: They lay out the theses. Here's the PetSmart investment thesis, okay? And then here's the Chewy investment thesis. You read through these bullets, the last bullet kind of touches on synergies and basically just says they can partner up in vendor negotiations and have more leverage with vendors. That's it. So... I think really it was just they had a good read on the industry and they said there's a huge growth area here in e-com. They clearly seen how effective Chewy was in e-com relative to what PetSmart was trying to do and not doing well. And they made a good bet. Now they spun out Chewy back into a public company. PetSmart, also a public company now. And they, so they spun out Chewy as a public company. They own 70% of Chewy. Roughly, after the IPO, yeah. Roughly. And Chewy is currently worth about $9 billion market cap on the public stock market. So, do the math. Basically, BC Partners, from the $3.3 billion, roughly doubled that money um, in, in, what, in what their ownership stake is worth today in Chewy. By all measures, a fantastic investment, basically over two years, doubling a few billion dollars. Pretty good return. Interestingly enough, you say, is there any platform dynamic here? And the answer is no. As you can see here from the synergy bullet, vendor negotiations, that spells linear. That spells I am buying products from manufacturers or from distributors buying them, putting them on my balance sheet, and then reselling them again. I've actually spoken to the PetSmart CEO about this and said, hey, would you ever think about letting third-party sellers come and sell on, you know, and open up a marketplace on Chewy and get network effects and get a wider assortment of inventory? Because Chewy doesn't have every product that Amazon has for pets, it's just a much more curated experience. Right, there's a much lot. more
1: tightly tailored to that buying experience. They're very big on customer service, and you know we can help you find the right product. And it, it's more of a kind of value-added service model in combination with e-commerce. And there's also been, I think, over the last few years, a lot more focus. I can tell you, this is a a pet owner, uh, pet safety, you know, quality products and. Uh, Chewy has definitely played into that, I think, pretty well to build for now a loyal audience. I think the challenge for them long term is uh, how do you avoid commoditization over the long term and compete with some of these marketplace companies?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you if you're if you're buying a toy, I've got a 15 month puppy and, you know, you say, well, is this is this toy pet safe? You know, am I going to know that if. If you chew through the thing, like he loves to chew through everything, could that actually harm him? Because it's kind of like a kid, right? And you don't want to put things in front of the kid that could hurt him or kill him or, you know, anything like that. So um, I think that's where this linear dynamic, to your point, is definitely starting to play out with safety, with just a more regulated, curated product environment actually resonating with customers
1: clearly right so things like pet food and pet toys are historically less stringently regulated than human products right so there's been uh a lot of uh, you know people concerned about the quality of stuff that their pet is getting as you know you have this big millennial trend of everyone is getting a pet now Mm -hmm. and maybe delaying having kids and treating the pet uh you know like a (laughs) like a child as you're saying and uh that this this kind of heavy service touch that, that Chewy has is definitely playing into that and capitalizing on that pretty yeah. well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely a platform dynamic here. Maybe there are certain product categories that are less critical or you could open those up. They're not as stringent where if my dog eats the toy and he could be at risk, I don't want to take a, a gamble there. But are there other product categories that you could open up? Probably. The other thing is the services dynamic. And this actually, this bullet was part of the PetSmart investment thesis here, where they have a kind of services network. They have a partnership with Banfield, offering uh, full veterinary services in 800 locations. An- another couple notable companies uh, from a services marketplace standpoint that our platforms would be WAG. Um and Rover. And um, I'm going to come back to WAG because it's also gotten a lot of money from our favorite investor, SoftBank. And um, that is going to bring us to our next topic. We spoke yesterday about some... Twitter was blowing up. Tech San Francisco Twitter was blowing up uh, about having to explain what a tech company is because they've gotten burned by WeWork. And we were saying, hey, I think... You know, the, the Bill Gurley's, the Fred Wilson's, the Benedict Evans of the world are kind of throwing shade at some of the later investors in WeWork because um, they're explaining, you know, how to value 10x multiples and what, what you know, what, look at the business model, don't look if it's a tech company, kind of pretty basic investment 101 kind of stuff. And so you're saying, well, you know, SoftBank definitely took a haircut on WeWork. And are these guys, you know, if, if you're SoftBank, and Benchmark invested early on at WeWork, and then Bill Gurley's explaining what to look for if, you, if the valuation is correct, and you've put billions of dollars into WeWork, probably not going to be too happy reading those tweets. So uh, another tweet today. I love this guy, Modest Proposal. And um, so there's a, there's a little bit here, basically confirming that it wasn't just Adam Newman's fault. It was actually SoftBank's fault. And they're actually specifically calling out Masayoshi-san and who's running the the SoftBank uh, you know funds and, and that whole initiative. So just to to read you a little tidbit here, they're explicitly blaming WeWork's investor, particularly Masayoshi Sun's SoftBank group, for the company's problems. Uh, Newman had always been obstinate, and his company was aggressive and a bit undisciplined. But its business had been on a more sustainable path until Sun and SoftBank showed up in 2017 and told Newman to make WeWork 10 times bigger than your original plan. That's in quotes, that being crazy is better than being smart and that WeWork wasn't being, quote, crazy enough, end quote. They're trying to make this all about Adam is a lunatic. This is now conjecture on, on, on what's happening today. But these people invested, they knew the terms, they knew about the governance issues, and they told this guy, be you, but be 10 times you. What did they expect? Okay, so this kind of sheds some more insight here. So what's really going on? And I think some of yesterday's Twitter, uh, you know, hullabaloo, it, it it was subtly kind of indirectly. It's all going back to the soft banks, some of these large Chinese funds that came in um, later on in, in WeWork's rounds to give them billions of dollars and say, go just really burn through cash and don't worry about the economics. And there's a funny book by Reed Hoffman called Blitz Scaling. And it basically says growth matters at all costs. You can screw up every other part of running a business. Um, you can be a bad manager. You can have a horrible culture. You can have basically everything in your company can be really bad, <laughs> including your P&L. But if you have a lot of growth, everything else will get figured out. And I think the lesson from this is,
1: there are limits to that. Well, I think Reed says this in the blitzscaling book. You only blitzscaling is not for every company. It, it doesn't ne- last needs to, there forever. Needs, there needs to be strong rationale to blitzscale. It should be a constrained period of time. to Help you get to a destination you want to get to, and that growth and the need to scale quickly should be a key factor in your ability to be successful. So, businesses. And a lot of what his blitzscaling focuses effects. on, yes,
0: are yes. platforms,
1: right? Not linear businesses. Right. So, what, real what estate is, companies. What is the uh, benefit of blitz scaling a real estate business?
0: Not sure there is one. Right, where is the compounding effect, that network effect that says, okay, well, if I only blitz scale from here to here, then I but, won't need to
1: effectively do that anymore. I think. We were tried to sell a little bit of, oh, we have all this data stuff and there's some kind of network effect there. Tech services I think uh, typically when the only thing people are selling is data network effects, as they call it, which to me looks a lot like a supply side economy of scale, uh, as opposed to a traditional cross-sided network effect that we see with platforms. I don't find that very compelling and I don't find that particularly defensible or monetizable or valuable the way that a traditional kind of platform network effect is. So, we worked, uh, I think, as we're saying here, basically blitz scaled to hell didn't probably shouldn't have. and it's not entirely their fault because their investor was pushing them to do that. And one of the things that some of these VC guys have been saying for a long time and some founders is uh, softbank money is a blessing and a curse, and you don't want your competitor to get it. But if you accept it, there are definitely strings attached to that. Mm-hmm. You're giving up you know some control in the direction of your company because if I have a hundred billion dollar fund, uh, I got to find a way to make a return on that. And the only way I'm going to do that is put in you know, five, $10 billion and have a huge scale from there. It's tough to do. Right. And then, you know, instead of supporting
0: the guy, when everyone says, whoa, this doesn't make any sense. Then it was also SoftBank. That was the final nail the in the coffin. Right. Yeah. To, to eject Adam as CEO and um, have him scale back his governance Uh, rights and all of these kinds of things. So
1: there's a a lot of money, but it was kind of a a Faustian bargain where, you know, you've uh, you're given some things up to get it. Yep. So look, I mean, there's multiple sides to every
0: story. I think as we peel back this, we work onion, it just kind of gets a little bit more interesting uh, every day. As more information comes out Um, at the end of the day, though, Adam's going to be fine guys worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And maybe he kind of knew this whole thing would blow up. And that's why he was doing all this self-dealing under the table compared to the FanDuel founders who maybe have a couple million bucks. I mean, it's a lot of money, but compared to <laughs>
1: yeah. what hundreds of millions of, of dollars, of millions right. of dollars he, there was a lot of criticism that he'd cashed out early. Yes. Uh, and obviously didn't help with the IPO process to have that, all that yes. self-dealing and things and, happening. But and again, what it really comes it down to well himself.
0: as we spoke about before is it's the employees That really got shafted in all this, right? At the end of the day, you know, Adam, smart guy, clearly understands what's going on. He protected his own kingdom, personal kingdom, actually made his own personal fortune of a kingdom and um, got, you know, basically took the money from the, I don't want to call him the devil, but took the money. It came with a lot of strings to kind of do things that probably didn't make sense in terms of how you'd actually want to grow the business. They right. thought they were being aggressive and then they had to throw that out the window and go 10 times as fast. Okay, um, and then who loses when that doesn't work? It's the employees. Their options are all underwater Now they have to do layoffs. They, all the employees that have been there for years thought that they were gonna have liquidity finally with the right, shares. And get a big payout. Now there's no liquidity and they're worth, you know, 25%, uh, 25 cents on the dollar. So. You know, it's unfortunate. Um, and there's a lot of good people that have worked there for a long time and just not going to pan out. So um, I don't know. You know, I just have a lot of skepticism when you see non-platform companies, linear companies trying to blitz scale and blitz scale at tremendous scale um, when they probably shouldn't need to be continuing to blitz scale. Oh, who else does that remind me of? Oh, Netflix. That's right. Um <laughs> okay. Anyway, last topic here. Uh, so this company not huge; it's not public. But we've talked a lot about how there is a dearth of new development platform opportunities. These controlled development platforms, right? If you look at the internet in the 2000s, if you look at smartphones in 0809, 2010, and the 10 years that followed, and all of the new startup creation that just occurred, all of the new innovation that occurred. On the heels of and on the backs of these large-scale development platforms, um, you've kind of seen that with AWS and Azure. You've kind of seen that with the Salesforce App Marketplace. Um, but those are closed development platforms, by our terminology, which is saying that they they are exposing APIs. And you can build apps and software on top of that and there's a marketplace but there isn't an actual hardware component there isn't a true operating system um, which when you look at the scope and range of apps that you can create uh, it's just much wider and broader as you have seen um, with say smartphones and we've spoken about um, we've spoken about the car as being a future potential arena for that but What about drones? So yesterday, UPS just announced that they had gotten the first commercial license from the government to operate drones, you know, in a fulfillment capability. I want you guys to watch this Skydio company. It's backed by a lot of the who's who in Silicon Valley. I think they've only raised about 60 or 65 million dollars. So this isn't a mega, mega company yet. But just look at some of the this technology in terms of the drone being able to follow you around and take footage of you. So no one's controlling the drone. It just knows to follow you and then uses AI to figure it out. I mean, this is pretty cool. This guy's biking. He's not telling the drone, okay, (laughs) you know, zoom in. Oh, okay, now go to the right. No, just the thing knows to do this and i think the question here is when you look at the application of drone technology and the just all the different industries that this is just recreational right for kind of just cinematography um that you want in sports but when you look at the agriculture industry when you look at now the fulfillment industry, when you there's there are drone startups for healthcare to deliver, um, you know, if you need medical supplies in Africa and you just can't get to these people, there are drones delivering, you know, blood or 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 critical supplies instantaneously or or certainly an order of magnitude faster than how they had traditionally been delivered. Um, you're seeing drones used to uh uh, take assessments of either, you know, weather damage or or roofing jobs for construction companies. You're just seeing a whole slew of different applications that drones can provide value to. And I guess what I'm getting at here is, is there a development platform opportunity for drones where you could have an ecosystem of third party developers that are building software that could be industry specific or um, you know uh, have have a specific type of utility um, or uh, intelligence that is helping to now inform the drone what to do or what information to scan and then providing the intelligence to scan the information from the video get some intelligence from that and then feed that back into the drone or feed that into other areas you know do you see a kind of development platform play here
1: nick with 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 drones, I, I would say definitely, and I think there's a few different arenas in which you could see this pop up. I think one is uh, the consumer kind of stuff we saw, so you know recreational use of drones. Uh, two would be the commercial stuff, so things like package delivery, uh, medical supply delivery, that kind of stuff. And then three would be military usage. I think the interesting thing uh, to note is that if you look at the smartphone where a lot of the sensors and things that were part of that. Uh, if you look at the internet and how that developed, all of these were at a certain point originally military technologies that then became basically commercialized uh, and became kind of foundational development platforms. Drones follow that path. Uh, and I think in terms of the applications, uh, both recreational consumer applications and commercial applications, as well as continued military applications, uh, there's definitely huge development platform opportunities and potentially uh, separately within each of those spheres. Yeah. There's probably two or three
0: buckets too, you know, so if we look at Salesforce, what we would say for Salesforce, there's kind of two buckets of types of apps. One type of app would be, I'm providing software down to the different users, Salesforce users. So I could be a salesperson out in the field. I could be an ops person, you know, in HQ and, and these apps are going to provide, you know, workflow management, um, different utility for these specific roles, That can do things with the data in Salesforce uh, and just make that more efficient or more applicable or whatever that may be. The other bucket of apps are apps that are actually improving the data in your Salesforce account. So cleaning up duplicative data, um, rinsing it out of incorrect data. There are literally billion dollar companies and all these companies are doing one of them. I forget the name. All it does is help give you the correct location. For the prospects or the contacts or the companies that you have in your Salesforce account. Just giving you location, accurate location information worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Um, So those would be kind of the two buckets there. When I look at drones, you know, what are the buckets we see? I see a bucket for having intelligence that is reading the video footage that's coming in and, and the other sensory information that's coming off of the drone. Right. And then inferring intelligence from that.
1: There's companies that do like computer vision stuff, looking at uh, assessing property damage or looking at, you know, appraising a house and taking photos of that Mm -hmm. and then being able to make sense of that uh, basically visual information to actually output useful data. Yep, exactly. Um, You can then have apps that are
0: going to help control the actual movement of the drone, right? Um, Or have it work in a certain sequence. You've seen, who, who does this? Maybe IBM, where they're doing kind of like the new version of fireworks shows. Is they do drone shows or they did this at the Olympics, right, right. where you have drones moving in sequence um, with one another to right. have a visual
1: display. Autonomously. Right? And I think that we saw that with uh, the example you showed of the kind of recreational use extreme yep. sports where there's certain software basically telling the drone how to combine what it's seeing with how it should move. Uh, and that's basically kind of an autonomous protocol that that gives it a set of instructions on how to act. And there's a lot of different use cases for that. You know, from extreme sports to you know, again, to appraising uh, yep. buildings to you know, industrial applications to delivering yep. stuff. There's a lot of different ways that the I same think, hardware and operations think that's can behave. The third bucket right.
0: is is the is the pairing the physical. Whether that's saying I'm delivering a package or I'm delivering blood, right? Where you're kind of wrapping the drone around this other service or fulfillment or product delivery capability. Right, enabling a physical service. Right, and now it's kind of hooking into that. I mean, you look at those three buckets alone, it's massive. I don't think we've seen a clear player coming out of this who is saying, I'm going to open this up at scale and try to connect both sides of this ecosystem. There are some Chinese drone manufacturing companies That are, um, are 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 very mature in their development of drone technologies, and they've started to flirt with this. I think a little bit in China. I think in the U.S., some of these Chinese drone companies are now coming under more scrutiny, um, just with the fact that we have millions of Chinese drones buzzing around the United States. Oh, which guess what? All have a backdoor into the Chinese Communist government. Um, so. You know, there's a few interesting dynamics going on here um, in the drone world, but we're going to dig into this some more and I think definitely highlight some of the players that could go after these these strong drone development platform opportunities. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll talk to you tomorrow.